You know, we take communion very seriously because of what it stands for, and it is right to understand and recognize the sobering aspect of it, but it's also a celebration. As we look back and we come together and celebrate the Lord's death, his burial, and his resurrection because of the work that has been done for us, and uh, as we were administering communion, I was delighting in the fact that we get to have uh, Deanne back with us. This is her first communion back with us in many months. This is Shiloh's first communion ever. As Grady said, he would think less of me if I didn't tear up at moments like that. (laughs) Leading up to Christmas, one of the traditions that we have in our household, and I'm so thankful for Elise for all of the effort she puts into the, really, the traditions and the family and you know, the, the work she does in the home. But one of those traditions that she has helped to cultivate in our house is the hanging of ornaments throughout the Christmas season on a separate tree based around different attributes and characteristics of who God is. We discuss him being the light of the world, of being living water. He is the lion of Judah. He's the bright morning star. He is the door. He is the vine and many others. One of the challenges, though, that come with these types of descriptions is that they are abstract. Jesus is not actually a lion. He is not actually a door. So we have to take the time to make these abstract ideas, these metaphors, concrete. So we take time discussing those and reading the scriptures that go along with them. This morning we come to a well-known story from Jesus' life. Even if you haven't spent much time in a church, you've likely heard of it. Jesus is feeding the 5,000. It's actually, as you know, more than 5,000. Just the 5,000 men that were there. And then all their wives and children added to that. This miracle became the basis for Jesus' teaching that he is the bread of life. Though the phrase bread of life does not appear in our text this morning, it was this miracle, this working, this feeding that laid the foundation for Jesus' teaching the very next day to the disciples and crowds, as John records in John 6, where he says, I am the bread of life. So we're going to look this morning at this miracle, and together as we seek to begin to unpack the significance of Jesus as our bread of life. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 14 as we continue our study through the Gospel of Matthew. Beginning down in verse 13, we read, Now, when Jesus heard about John, he withdrew from there in a boat to a secluded place by himself. And when the people heard of this, they followed him on foot from the cities. When he went ashore, he saw a large crowd and felt compassion for them and healed their sick. When it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This place is desolate and the hour is already late, so send the crowds away that they may go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said to them, They do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. They said to him, We have here only five loaves and two fish. And he said, bring them there to me. 
ordering the people to sit down on the grass, he took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up toward heaven, he blessed the food. And breaking the loaves, he gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. They picked up what was left over of the broken pieces, 12 full baskets. There were about 5,000 men who ate besides the women and children. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning recognizing you as the bread of life and desiring to learn from the words of Matthew's account what it was that was so significant about this miracle. Yes, the miracle itself is amazing. It is supernatural. It defies human explanation. And yet, Father, you do not work for the sake of just doing a work. There is always meaning and purpose behind what you do. As we look to unpack this this morning, would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts that desire to be obedient, not out of some obligation, but out of love for you and a desire to love you through demonstrating our obedience. Pray this in your name. Amen. The opening of verse 13, when Jesus heard, it takes us back all the way to verse 2 of chapter 14. Remember, Herod had heard about Jesus. Do you remember Herod's response, though? He's hearing about these miracles of Jesus, and he believes it is John the Baptist risen from the dead. We looked into that last week, and we were reminded and taken back several months, if not a year earlier, to when John had been beheaded. But upon learning of Herod's interest and his attention, Jesus leaves by boat for a secluded place. And it's there that we move from the feast of Herod Antipas to another meal. This one, as one commentator noted, has a simpler menu but a more wholesome atmosphere. In verse 13, we see that Jesus desires to remove himself from a politically volatile situation, from a capricious ruler, that is from Herod, And the remote area Jesus traveled to, according to Luke 9, was near Bethsaida. It was on the northeastern part of the lake, an area outside the territory, just outside the territory of Herod Antipas. It was a less populated place. It was used as pasture land. And so the term desolate, lonely, isolated, or wilderness, depending upon your translation, refers to an area which, and to a term which has shades of meaning depending upon the context. Here it refers to the uninhabited and lonely character of the region, this desolate place. Jesus moves from ministering publicly to the crowds to now ministering privately to his disciples, or at least that's his intention. Yet the crowds were eager to join Jesus. So they raced along the coastline on foot, probably keeping his boat in sight or as close to it as they could, and managed to reach his landing area before he arrived It's actually quite a feat. Perhaps illustrating why it was they didn't have food with them. They didn't have time to pack and prepare. They rushed with an eagerness to follow him and not lose sight of him in in the boat as he went along. Matthew and the other gospel writers note that when Jesus came ashore, he saw the crowd and had compassion on them. Now I want to pause and just note something that's pretty important here. It is not the main purpose of the text. It is somewhat ancillary and yet incredibly significant as it relates to us 
with regard to the character of Jesus. And we're reminded that as disciples of Jesus Christ, we are called to follow him and the example and pattern he established. We are to become imitators of Jesus Christ. Paul reminds us of that as he says, imitate Christ or imitate me as I follow Christ. We see that repeated several times throughout the epistles. And so we're called to follow but the example and the teaching of Christ. Here's one of those examples. You know, Jesus sets out to be alone with his disciples. The crowds upset those plans. But notice that Jesus is not upset. Even though his expectations were upended, Jesus does not respond in frustration or exasperation. He's not short-tempered. Something you may not know, or perhaps you do know about me, is that I'm more of a type A personality. Growing up, my parents were constantly telling me to be more flexible. I didn't like when my plans and my expectations were messed with. It could be a very small thing, and I did not like it. Add to the fact that I'm more of an introvert, that I don't really seek out crowds, and my response to this situation would have been vastly different than Christ's response. Needless to say, I wouldn't have had much compassion. But Jesus not only sets an example by what he does not do, by not responding in frustration, by not responding you know, in shortness or saying, all right, let's go further down the coast. Here, catch that wind, Peter, and let's sail away from them. But by what he does do, notice what it is that Matthew emphasizes here. We read that he had compassion on them. He healed their sick. Jesus was moved to act by compassion when he sees these crowds. This, by the way, gives us insight into the heart of Christ. Jesus was so concerned about others, so focused on their needs and conditions, that he immediately places the needs and the desires of the crowd before his desire to be alone, and he begins to minister to them. He lays aside his expectations, what he set out to do, to begin ministering to the crowds. You will know how well you love others by how you respond when they inconvenience you or upset your plans. If you want to know if you love people, if you want to know if you have cultivated compassion for others, desiring to emulate Christ, don't evaluate it by how you respond when they're nice to you or doing everything you expect from them or when they agree with your opinion and your position, when everyone shows up to t on time like they said they would. Instead, evaluate how you respond, how you think about them when they upset your plans. When they respond or act in a way that is immature or thoughtless, when they inconvenience you. How you respond in that moment will help you to identify whether or not you are following the example of Christ. As Paul notes in Philippians 2, before looking at the humility and the character of Christ, Philippians 2, 3, and 4, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but in lowliness, humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. This is what Christ exemplifies for us in this passage and don't think that you can just wait until something happens and then you're going to respond perfectly. You have to begin preparing and setting your mind now. Whenever I think of that truth, I'm always taken back to the example of Daniel and his friends who set their mind or set their heart 
to obey the law of the Lord so that when they were taken into captivity and placed before him with them were the, was the food sacrificed to idols, they would not do it. While all their friends did, what was the difference? They had set their mind to obey the law of the Lord. So if you desire to emulate Christ, if you desire to follow him, you must begin by setting your mind now. So how do you do that? How do you prepare? How do you prepare to be compassionate and kind and gentle to others? Well, that passage from Philippians really lays out the beginning and one of the ways that, really the starting point, which is by cultivating humility, the humility of Christ. But if I stop there, that's, again, somewhat abstract. If I just said, all right, go from here and cultivate the humility of Christ. Great, I want to do that, but how? How do I do that? Well, one way is by confessing sin daily. Come to the Lord, asking for forgiveness, not in generic ways that, Lord, you know I'm a sinner, but specifically. Do not pray generically, but confess specifically. Acknowledge not just your sin, but your weakness, your inabilities, specifically. That will humble you. It will help you to be humble as it lowers your view of yourself. Philip Melanchthon, who was one of Luther's followers and disciples, accomplished much, in much more obscurity, he's still well known, but much more obscurity than Luther himself. But the Lord used him mightily, and it's little wonder, given his habitual practice, at the end of every day, he would go and he would confess with specificity every wasted moment of his day and a desire to rightly redeem his time, rightly honor the Lord. Another way to cultivate this heart of compassion toward others is to be praying for them regularly. When you're regularly praying for others, it is much easier to respond with compassion. And in those times where you don't, be quick to ask for forgiveness. The next best thing for them to see is the humility of confessing and repenting. Well, while Matthew tells us that Jesus has compassion, he does not leave it in the abstract. Instead, like most ancient narratives, Matthew's story reveals the character of Christ by describing what it is that Jesus does. Not just generically saying Christ is compassionate and moving on, but we now get to see in what ways is he compassionate. And this is not unique just to ancient narratives. Good writers carefully do this. For example, rather than just tell you that someone is a, maybe a caring and a thoughtful teacher, they will introduce you to an individual and say something like, though the years had taken their toll, Mrs. Smith was always at the door with a smile, greeting each child by name as they entered the classroom. Or to say someone is humble, you wouldn't just read James was a humble man. Instead, you would read an illustration of this humility. You might read, wiping the sweat from his brow, James tried to brush away the dirt from his pants while looking down at his stained knees, all the while hearing the chiding voice of his neighbor, Mrs. Jones, from across the street, saying that the town doctor has no business getting himself dirty like that, even if he was helping to weed the garden for his patient, Mrs. Edwards, whose rheumatoid arthritis prevented her from caring for the garden like she used to. Which of those is more effective in communicating that he is a humble man? Simply to say he is humble or to show that humility? It's the illustration, isn't it? Word pictures, figurative language, metaphor, these are tools God has given us in communication, tools that are used in Scripture itself that help to communicate and ingrain truth in ways that straightforward explanations do not. 
This is why when we study scripture, we must slow down and carefully observe what we learn, whether about persons or about God from the text. While we learn much about God from propositional or didactic teaching, such as we find in the epistles, the character of Christ, the attributes of God, make a lasting and a profound impression through the narratives and poetry of Scripture. These descriptions vividly portray and imprint upon us the character of God in more tangible ways, and they solidify and make even more real those propositional truths we see and observe through direct teaching. Additionally, is the narrative text, those that illustrate God and Christ working in the world, which give us hope and assurance that what is taught about God is true. Yes, that's a statement about God, but how do I know that's true? Because he's done it. Because he's done it in the past. And so here we see Christ's compassion made tangible and concrete. First, by healing the sick. And then in the longer description of his provision of food in the following verses. In verse 15, Matthew doesn't waste any time getting to the miracle. The other gospel writers fill in a few more details for us about the teaching that went on that day. He was teaching the crowds before the evening came while healing them. In fact, the text seems to indicate there's nothing to say otherwise. He healed every single person that was sick in that crowd. Anyone who was brought to him, he healed them. Then as evening arrived, and this would have been early evening since there were still more evening events to take place as we'll look at in the coming weeks, the disciples, perhaps motivated by their own stomachs, tell Jesus something must be done with regard to the food. And as the disciples note, this area is desolate. I've already noted that this term here is a remote wilderness pasture land removed from civilization. The nearest towns are Capernaum and Bethsaida. And combined, they only had two to 3,000 inhabitants. You can already recognize the problem we've got here. This is a crowd of 5,000 men, plus the women and children. Conservatively, maybe 15,000 people. And you've got the two nearest towns combined had resources for two to 3,000. So even if all the food was brought out from these towns, it would scarcely feed this crowd. Or if it did, it would leave nothing in reserve for the townspeople. The fact in verse 14 that they sit in the grass, or verse 19, excuse me, where they sit in the grass, tells us that this is spring. This would have been, before the coming harvest, they would have been near depleting the resources they had stored up over the winter. So it wasn't like there was gonna be a lot of food to be found, but maybe if they go into the towns, maybe if we disperse them, they'll find enough food to take care of them. It's interesting how Matthew contrasts the sufficiency and the provision of Christ against the shortcomings of the disciples. Though not necessarily a lack of faith, the disciples immediately show a lack of ability and recognition of Christ's ability to provide. If they would have just remembered the very first miracle of Christ, the wedding of Cana, and how Jesus turned water into wine, they might have phrased things differently. And so verse 16 opens with, but Jesus. These words, but God or but Jesus, so frequently highlight the compassionate and gracious work of God. We read that in Psalm 66. You see it in Ephesians 2, but God. Here Jesus first tells the disciples to solve the problem. They don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. 
Now, Jesus certainly intended this as a teaching moment. He knew their response, but now he also doesn't give them an instruction they couldn't have fulfilled. And yet their faith has not grown to that point yet. Instead, they are incredulous. And in Mark and John, they note that it would have taken 200 denarii or two-thirds of a year's wages to provide enough food to even provide the most basic of meals for this crowd. All they can find as they survey this entire crowd is a young boy, according to John 6, who had five barley loaves and two fish. It's interesting to note the specificity of even the type of loaf. It was barley. So it was a cheaper grain. It was the food of the poor. Perhaps this young boy's mom had quickly and hastily thrown those provisions together as he raced al- before he raced along the shoreline, catching up with the crowd and being there when Jesus arrived. These five loaves are not the way you think of loaves, or we normally think of loaves. They would have been about maybe the size of a fist. It's probably meant to last the boy one to two meals. If he's a growing boy, half a meal. And remember the people left in a hurry in order to follow Jesus. This is likely why there's such a shortage and paucity of food. Now one of the things I want you to notice here at this point are several allusions to the Exodus generation. Leading up to Exodus 16, where God provides manna in the wilderness. We notice the haste with which the people followed Christ, leaving and having so little with them. We notice the wilderness setting. And we notice God's provision of bread. In fact, John makes this allusion clear in John 6 by noting how the next day even the crowd refers back to the wilderness generation who came out of Egypt who grumbled in the wilderness before God provided manna from heaven, although they attribute it to Moses. And Jesus has to correct them and says, no, both in that case and in this case, it was not Moses, but it was God. The disciples have demonstrated their inability at this point, so considering their skepticism and inability, Jesus simply says, bring them, that is the bread and the fish, bring them to me. Think about the significance of those words for a moment and what they teach. There is not one moment of Jesus' life that was wasted. There was not one superfluous word. There was not one unnecessary action. Jesus, by this simple interaction, is teaching both the disciples and the people of their need to rely upon him. Just as he taught them on the Sermon on the Mount to not worry, to trust the Lord because of their heavenly Father who cares for them. So here he tells them, bring the food to me so that he could care for them. We've seen Jesus telling the disciples and the crowds, come to me. Come to me all who are Weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Follow after me. The call of Jesus is come to me so he can provide what we cannot. To accomplish what we cannot. To comfort where we cannot. So here it is illustrated by Jesus telling the disciples, come to him so that he can provide for the physical needs of the crowd. But as John so clearly highlights in his gospel, it was not lost on any of them, the spiritual significance of Christ's provision. You know, whether it be coming to the Lord in prayer, whether it's us bringing our meager abilities or offerings, how many times have we delayed in coming to the Lord? 
only to see him act when we do. Why do we wait until we are exasperated, we are at our wit's end, after we've tried everything we can do to come to Jesus? Why do we try to do everything ourselves first instead of coming to him and asking for help? Scripture doesn't say do everything you can first and then when you realize you can't do it, go to Christ. Certainly not for salvation. And even after salvation, that's not our instruction. Why do we wait so long to cast our burden upon him? Knowing that he cares for us and is able to do abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. Do you realize that your failure to pray is a failure to trust? That your delay in praying is a failure to trust? I'm guilty of this. And it's amazing how it slips in. Jesus could have just provided, the Lord could have just provided for me the other day. And yet I turn around and I realize when I'm exasperated, Struggling, I stop and realize I have forgotten to ask the Lord to provide. We all need to do a better job of that, of making that our first response. One way to help cultivate this is to just simply be obedient and following Christ's instruction to pray daily for our daily bread. Well, Luke tells us that Jesus had them sit in groups of about 50 each. This, by the way, probably helps to explain why each gospel writer was able to estimate the size of the crowd. And what follows after setting the crowds down in verse 19 has allusions now to the taking of food, the giving of thanks, and the breaking of the loaves that is going to take place a year later in the upper room, the night before Jesus' death when he eats with his disciples and speaks of the new covenant being inaugurated. In verse 19, Jesus looks up to heaven and he blesses the bread. That is, he gives thanks for the provision. It's likely similar to the traditional Jewish chamotzi. Blessed art thou, O Lord, our God, King of the world, who brings forth bread from the earth. And as verse 20 notes, they did not just eat a little. They are satisfied. All are satisfied. All 5,000 men plus the women and the children So much so that when they went to collect afterwards, they had 12 basketfuls of food left over. Now you might ask, why 12 baskets? I've asked the same question and I don't have a firm answer. Well, I'm certain that the 12 baskets, the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 apostles are no coincidence. The exact meaning and significance of the 12 is uncertain. But it could be that it's similar to what D.A. Carson has noted, that Messiah, the Messiah's supply is so lavish that even the scraps of his provision are enough to supply the needs of Israel represented by the 12 tribes. And though this is certainly a true implication, even Carson acknowledges that we can't know the specific meaning of the 12 baskets. Ultimately, we must content ourselves to the fact that it clearly shows the overflowing abundance of the kingdom of God. Remind yourself of the message that Christ has been preaching and has continued to preach and no doubt preach that day. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Remember what we've been seeing as we've been studying the Gospel of Matthew about how the nearness of the kingdom is being displayed. It's by these healings, by the temporary setting back of the curse. In anticipation of 
the fullness of the kingdom coming and the curse being reversed. And here we see that overflowing abundance of the kingdom of God. Notice too that the miracle itself is never stated, just the results. So again, as an excellent writing or storytelling technique, Matthew didn't say, it was a miracle. We see that it was a miracle. They kept breaking the bread and breaking it and breaking it and breaking it and it continued to go. It didn't stop until all were full, all were satisfied, and there were 12 baskets left over. God doesn't only give, he gives graciously and abundantly. The cup runneth over. He's a good father who delights to give good gifts to his children. Yet this miracle is more than simply satisfying this physical craving for food. It was to illustrate a much more important and lasting truth that Jesus is the bread of life. As this looks back to God's provision of man in the wilderness and looks now to and forward to God's miraculous multiplication of bread and fish, this compassionate feeding anticipates the most necessary provision God will ever give, and that is the bread of life, Jesus himself. We've already noted the foreshadowing that exists to Jesus' supper the night before his death. In that final supper Jesus had with his disciples, he instituted what we celebrated this morning, the Lord's Supper. And holding up the bread, he breaks it and said, this is my body given for you. The disciples would have immediately gone back to John 6, 35, where Jesus said, I am the bread of life. And now they are witnessing this bread of life being given for them. This is the greatest provision that has ever been given. Bread stood for the bare necessity of life. The least that you needed. In fact, bread became symbolic and synonymous. The term bread, which by the way is Lehim, Bethlehem, where Jesus was born, is the house of bread. I don't think that's an accident either. But that bread symbolized food, symbolized sustenance. It would sometimes be used generically to mean just a blessing upon someone. And here in Christ, we see the many images and pictures of bread throughout the scripture. It's provision, it's life-giving force, it's blessing brought together in Christ who became for us the one and only means of eternal life. Just as bread or food keeps us alive, Jesus promises to raise us in eternity with him. Just as we trust the food we eat to satisfy our hunger and to provide nourishment in this life, we must trust in Christ to satisfy our spiritual longing and serve as the guarantee of our spiritual life. For all of us, those who are Christians who can claim to be disciples of Jesus Christ, this feeding looks even further forward to the future banquet in heaven. The Christ is already introduced in Matthew 8, verse 11, where Jesus' provision of eternal life secures for us a seat at that heavenly banquet. It's a reminder that God feeds his people, body and soul. See, there's a theological trajectory running throughout scripture that looks at the neediness of people in this world this world that is broken and cursed by sin and shows God and Christ's great compassion and provision, both of body and soul, with a view toward the last day to the ushering in of the eternal kingdom and the end of the effects of the curse. 
Once again, the kingdom of heaven has been brought near. Matthew's account in verse 21 closes simply by summarizing the size of the crowd that Jesus ministered to that day. There is no comment about the response of the crowds or even of the disciples. No discussion of their amazement. We are left simply to meditate upon the compassion and provision of the true bread of life, Jesus Christ. And so, let's do that. Having observed Jesus' feeding of the crowds after healing their sick, I want to ask this question. We're going to spend a few minutes on this question as we summarize this teaching. What is it that moves Jesus to compassion in verse 14? He had compassion, but why did he have compassion? We know Jesus feeds the people and he heals them, but what is the compassion that he feels? What is it that moves him? We can begin to answer by looking back to Matthew 9.36. You remember 9.36, it closes there with Jesus looking out over the crowds and feeling compassion for them, a sheep without a shepherd. He felt compassion because they were harassed, they were downcast. He felt compassion over the spiritual desperation of the people, their need for someone to guide them and to nurture them. That certainly hasn't changed. As one commentator noted, divine compassion comes forth as gracious response to a spiritual need. And so it was certainly the spiritual need that moves this compassion, that energizes this compassion. It was their need of a shepherd. However, we see something new here. Even though it was a spiritual need that motivated this compassion, Jesus demonstrates his compassion not simply by teaching them, but by ministering to their physical needs. It is a spiritual need that motivates the compassion. It's a response and a demonstration of that compassion to physical needs. This demonstration is important, and it's an important message because the king, it's an important message that the kingdom of God is concerned not just with spiritual needs, but also physical ones. Now, why is that? We all can probably think of examples where an emphasis on physical needs has overshadowed and almost hidden the emphasis on spiritual needs, where it's focused on the physical to the extent, to the expense of the spiritual. But why is it that Jesus, when faced with only another year or so to live in this earthly ministry, feeling great compassion over the spiritual state of these people, stops and deals with their physical needs? I think the answer is bound up in the kingdom of God and what the kingdom of God accomplishes. As one pastor notes, we should be wary of too quickly making a hard and fast distinction between spiritual and physical needs. You've heard the saying, the way way to a man's heart is through his stomach. There's something proverbial about this beyond just food that meeting physical needs in a person is often the path for the light of the gospel to become visible to them. God frequently used the meeting of physical needs to lower defenses and break through spiritual blindness. He does that now, and he's done it throughout Scripture, throughout the Old Testament and in the New Testament. What is key is that this meeting of physical needs is intimately tied to the gospel. Because we 
because so often the, the effects of the curse, we, we see these effects of the curse all around us. We see people hurting. We see them hurting for food. We see them struggling with sickness, with illness. We see things breaking down all around us. All of this is because of what? It's not just a happenstance. It's because of the curse. You see, we have the answer for why people suffer. And so ministering to a person's physical needs, whatever they may be, recognizes, for the believer, we should be rightly recognizing the effect of sin on this entire world. How sin has made work hard, how it's made living hard, how it's made staying healthy hard, how it makes keeping a car running hard. Everything is hard because everything is affected by sin. The reason that God is interested in us meeting physical needs as well as spiritual ones is because it provides a wonderful opportunity for talking about sin. More specifically, a wonderful opportunity for talking about the kingdom of God and how it reverses the effect of sin. When ministering to someone, we can ask, why do you think so many people struggle to have enough to eat? Or why do you think so many people get sick? Or why are things always breaking down? While you're helping someone fix their car, why do you think it is that the cars are always breaking down, that we can't make a car that runs forever and never breaks down? The answer is sin. And this compassion of Jesus that we are to emulate should motivate us to active ministry and works of service because it does, in a small way, bring near the kingdom of God. In a very small way, it gives people hope of the kingdom of God as we soften the blow of the curse. We can't remove it. Only Christ can remove it. But this compassion and this effort to serve those around us helps to bring near the kingdom of God and to show and illustrate and highlight the kingdom of God. That's why James writes, in James 2, 14 through 17, saying, What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works, can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warm and filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. Why is that? Because it's not a faith that shows the kingdom of God. Creation is cursed by sin. Everything has been affected. There is not a person alive who does not experience the effects of the curse. It's because of this that we look to cultivate compassion and to minister to the needs of others. But again, we don't want to separate that from the gospel. We don't just meet a need and fail to say, and point someone to Christ. To remind them that the reason that we do something is because we desire to show the love of God. Because all the while we need to be reminding others that softly and tenderly Jesus is calling, calling to you and to me. As the praise team comes up, we're reminded of what Jesus said was, come to me. Turn with me, just take a left from Matthew 14 back to Matthew eleven twenty-eight, 28, and we've come back to this passage so many times. 
where Jesus says, by the way, this is whether you're preaching evangelism or you're encouraging a fellow brother and sister, this is what we need to be reminding ourselves of what Christ says. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And remember what that rest entails. It's so much more than a good afternoon nap. So much more than just the solution to a problem. It's the reversal of the curse. It is the kingdom of God coming near. Let's pray. Father, we praise you and thank you for showing us tangibly that you are the bread of life of demonstrating that compassion that day on the shores of the Sea of Galilee to that enormous crowd and in working a miracle that so clearly points to our sufficiency in Christ, our only sufficiency being found in Christ. Would we be quick to come to Christ, quick to turn to him each and every day? If there are any here this morning who have not or will not turn to you, would you soften those hearts? Would you help them to see that the struggles, the difficulties, the fears, the heaviness of this world is never going to go away unless they come and cast their burden upon you? We thank you for the promises that are given, and more than that, the fact that you are a promise keeper. We pray these things in your name. Amen.